0: and welcome to In With The Old. We are a podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. My name is Dr. Tim Howe, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Brian Koning, as we launch into the Book of Ruth. And before we get into
1: it, Dr. Brian, how are you doing today? You know, I'm doing well. I'm excited to get into it. Last time, we kind of set the table, as it were, right? We said, all right, here's where all the pieces are. Here's some things to kind of be aware of. Uh, but now we're getting into Tim, shall we say one of our, our first loves of studying the Bible, digging into the text itself, seeing what's there and hopefully using it to build ourselves up, uh, to be better servants of God, to be better followers of God. So I'm excited to get into this. So let's get started. Ruth chapter one. Let's go. Yeah.
0: Ruth chapter 1, and for our listeners who've been following us, we're going to do it a little bit differently. We're actually doing a verse-by-verse study of the book of Ruth. Uh, In a sense, this is designed to be a video commentary where we read the passage, we really dissect the passage. And uh, to do that, we're actually going to read the passage verse-by-verse and then go back through it uh, in our study. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Ruth chapter 1. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible, Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 says this, during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land and a man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband Elimelech died and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's needs by providing them food. And she left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Well, Brian, last time we talked about the fact that every detail in this narrative is important, and that's true in general when we read the Bible, but especially in such a succinct story and ones that, one that's so intentionally structured, every word has meaning and, and significance. And as we come to the beginning of Ruth chapter one, this is setting the stage for the story that follows. So uh, what are some just general observations that you have, Brian, as we think about the, the background of this story? What are some things that you think should pop off the page at us from the very beginning?
1: Well, the first thing is just start right at the beginning, during the time of the judges. Mm -hmm. So that sets the story, as it were, in time. Now, listeners, we do need to make a distinction between when the story was written versus when the story is set, right? Mm -hmm. There's going to be maybe some interesting theology of when it was written that this book is addressing. But the setting of the story is the time of the judges. This is a dark time in the history of Israel, the redemptive history, shall we say, Uh, You have the bright spots of Judges on the scene, but Judges are only there when things are really bad, right? This is not a time marked by faithfulness to God, but rather by dissolution, dissipation, and a lack of unity in the people of God. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of the setting of the story. It also forecasts, I think, for us, Tim, the ending of the story. The time Mm -hmm. of Judges is drawing to a close. We're right at the end of it. So uh, those are some of the things that jump off the page to me. I also want to look outside the text and if I have a physical Bible in front of me, flip back just a few pages because Mm -hmm. the previous story is right at the end of Judges and it deals with kind of the brokenness of Israel, uh, the, the killing of a prostitute, Israel devolving basically to be like Sodom and Gomorrah and how they've treated outsiders. Um, and so it's, I think quite intentionally in our Bibles, this book is pulled out of its normal place where it'd be in the Hebrew ordering of the old Testament. Uh, placed alongside Judges as a compare and contrast. Uh, On the one hand, we're going to see at the end of Judges the lineage of King Saul, and in this book, the lineage of King David. Uh, And so those are some of the things just from the setting of where the book is, both in time and in canonical ordering, that jump off the page to me. So I I didn't go far, only about five words, six (laughs) words into the text. Uh, But those are some of the things I want us to start thinking about. Uh, Tim, what's maybe the next thing or other things that we want to grab just from this first verse uh, to set the scene for us?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Brian. I, I totally agree with you. And when we read the book of Judges in particular, we see that, that darkness uh, really probably doesn't even begin to describe it. It, it is total hmm. anarchy in the truest sense of that word. It's doing what's right in your own eyes rather than following the will of God. Uh, and and I think that we're meant to see it. You mentioned this, Brian, really is a foil. We see the period of the judges versus the period of the kings, just like we see mm-hmm. Orpah versus Ruth or Elimelech versus Boaz. There's a lot of this intentional contrast. And I love what you mentioned, Brian, as, as we think about the book of Judges and the book of Ruth, even though they're in separate sections of the Hebrew Bible, there are ancient Jewish traditions that have really bound them together almost from the very beginning. Uh, in fact, you know, Brian, that some even argue that the book of Ruth is, is really kind of uh, another story in the Bethlehem cycle as the book of Judges ends. Now, that's beyond right. the scope of what we're talking about. But truly, as we think about this, the narrator is alerting us this is really one of the darkest moments in terms of Israel's national identity. And yet it's Mm -hmm. against that dark backdrop that uh, the light of Ruth and the faithfulness of God can shine all the brighter. And so, yes, I agree with you completely on the forecasting. I think it's meant to be a foil. It's also alerting us uh, to the fact that we're gonna look at people who are very flawed and make some bad decisions. Um, Mm -hmm. As as we continue, it says, a man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. And so just like there's a temporal background, there's also a geographical background. Um, Brian, let let me ask you this question, leaving Israel for Elimelech, Mm -hmm. making that choice to leave Israel, what do you make of that? Is that wrong for him to leave Israel? What's going on here?
1: Yeah. So there's a lot going on in just uh, where they're leaving and where they're going. Right. So on the one hand listeners, there's a bit of a, an irony. I think I described in the introduction, Tim, that I I find the author of Ruth kind of playful and fun in how they put their story together. Um, Bethlehem is the house of bread and they're Mm -hmm. leaving it because there's a famine right there. There's a Mm -hmm. kind of sense of irony. They're heading to the land of Moab now. Listeners, if you followed along in the Old Testament to this point, Moab is a mixed bag uh, and it's mostly a bag mixed with bad things. Now, on the one hand, the Moabites are related to the Israelites. The Moabites are descendants of Lot. However, despite what you might hopefully expect, right, as some familial or, or clan-like loyalty, um, it, it's Balak uh, of Moab, right, that tries to get Balaam to curse Israel. Um, Mm -hmm. The Moabites stood in the way of Israel, excuse me, and uh, they are separated from the Canaanites. Israel is specifically told to not intermarry with the Canaanites, but the Moabites aren't included in that prohibition. But the Moabites are said that they can't enter the uh, assembly tent, right? They Mm -hmm. are separate from Israel. They are a step below. So your question of what do we make of this man going to Moab? On the one hand, there is no prohibition of an Israelite leaving the promised land, right? I can't find any text that says, thou shalt not leave once you've arrived. Mm-hmm. And yet, you've been brought as the people of Israel to the promised land. You're at the place that God has directed you to be. Is it wise to leave there? Mm-hmm. I think the answer is clearly no. The Old Testament is replete with stories that the setting is someone is where they aren't supposed to be, and therefore bad things happen. I'm Mm -hmm. thinking of, we're talking about the forebears of King David, the David Bathsheba story, Tim, right, begins with in the time when the kings went to war. Yeah, David's in Jerusalem, right? It's a subtle little like, oh, he's not where he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be out fighting with the army, where ironically Bathsheba's husband is. Um, Mm -hmm. He's in the wrong place. And that's going to lead to some wrong actions. You have in Genesis, you've got Jacob, Uh, continually doesn't quite get back all the way to where he's supposed to be. Stories keep uh, coming out of that. Even Abram and Lot, Lot is in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's maybe not where he's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, I want to say like, we don't have any strong prohibitions to say this is sinful that he's leaving. But I think all signs of wisdom say that this was a bad choice. I guess that's Mm -hmm. how I want to put it. I don't want to say he's violating a commandment because there is not one written down. But I think narratively, the author is very clearly indicating to us, "Oh, he's going somewhere that he was not directed to be. Bad things are likely going to follow, and are going to follow as we're going to see." That's how I would phrase it, Tim. Uh, would you agree with that, or would you? How would you phrase that for yourself?
0: Yeah, I, I think Elimelech did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, I mean, he Ooh, felt yes. like leaving the land of Israel was going to lead to his survival and maybe flourishing. But of course, there's an irony, right? That what he did was right in his own eyes, but it was actually uh, a denial in a sense of God's faithfulness to redress mm-hmm. the famine and ultimately provide. And we see this by what, by the way, you mentioned a few examples. You know, Abram, Abram leaving. Uh, in terms of going down to Egypt during a famine. Isaac does the same thing. Uh, So this is something that's a particular temptation, and we can empathize with it to a degree, right? Well, we're starving. There's food in Moab, so I'm going to take my family to where there's food. Uh, But of course, that raises the question as to whether or not the famine is more than just a a phenomenon of weather, but whether the Hmm. famine is actually potentially a curse of God Uh, on the faithlessness of Israel in keeping with the Deuteronomistic curses, where God says, if you serve me, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you don't, then I I won't bless you. At which point, perhaps there's this undercurrent of Elimelech trying to uh, get (laughs) out of the curse, as it were, to uh, abandon Israel, to go to a place where there's more blessing. Uh, So I I think definitely there's this huge question mark. Why would Elimelech leave, especially, uh, when we consider, as we're going to in uh, in just a minute, when we consider his name, my God is king. Well, why would someone <laughs> who's named my God is king not trust the king to provide for his needs? Um, I'll kick it back yeah. to you in a second. But one more thing I want to add, Brian, is when we think of Moab, uh, Moabite women in particular Uh, We're seen as those who lured Israelites away. We see this in Numbers chapter 25, that the Moabite women seduced the Israelite men to serve other gods. And so it's not just that the land of Moab has this incestuous origin in terms of Lot and his daughters, uh, or that Moab in particular is an enemy of Israel because they didn't help whenever Israel was coming to the promised land. And in a sense, it's even worse. The Moabite women have reputations and those reputations Mm. are not good. And of course that's anticipating what we're going to see in terms of the marriages, but the land of Moab does not have a good reputation. This would have been seen as a a folly on the part of Elimelech, very possibly even shameful to have left his community while they're experiencing a famine. And so I totally agree Mm -hmm. with you. This is something that does not forebode well. And of course, it doesn't take long for the chickens to come home to roost, so to speak.
1: Yeah. And what you brush just brought up, Tim, is important if we're talking about irony. And, and the author does like to play with this. Uh, the phrase mm. in our culture today is subverting expectations. Mm. Uh, if you're coming in in the culture and reading this and you're going, oh, he's going to Moab. Oh, and they're marrying Moabite women. Mm. Everything to the story this, to this point is going to be, that's a bad call right Mm -hmm. and yet that's going to be something we subvert as the story goes forward that this moabites Ruth is going to be more faithful than most Mm. of the israelite characters in the story so that that's looking ahead a little bit but i just want to latch on and say yeah that's a very good point uh on the kind of shall we say reputation that the moabites would have in this time and culture um and listeners i hope you also latch on to what tim said about famine Mm. Famine is something obviously that might have many naturalistic causes. But there's also this, I think, intimation, Tim, see if you go with me this far, uh, throughout Mm -hmm. this book, that this is more than just naturalistic. Uh, Mm -hmm. Famine is part of the covenant curses of Deuteronomy, and Mm -hmm. it is used in many places in the Old Testament as a sign of God's displeasure. Mm -hmm. Compare that to the end of the story. The end of the story is going to deal with the harvesting of food again as well. And so, much like the story of Esther, uh, I, I think we have all these little breadcrumbs to show, look, we aren't going to say, and God did this necessarily at every juncture, but mm-hmm. as a reader, the author is saying, look, there is a hand behind all these things, right? God is not absent, even if we're not, you know, mentioning his name every other sentence, he is in and through this story. So I think yes. this famine is, is more than just something that happens, it happens in the natural world, of course, but I think mm-hmm. we're supposed to see that there's a guiding hand behind this. Uh, would yeah. you agree with that, Tim, that there, there's a lot more going on here? I would. In fact, I, I think even in the name Elimelech, uh,
0: we see yeah. that Elimelech's name is true, even though he's not faithful to his name, that truly God is the king, and God is mm-hmm. governing all of the, the events in this story, and bring them bringing about his promises and his purposes to pass. So I totally agree with you. Um, I think it's interesting that the narrator doesn't explicitly comment and say these things, uh, but in a sense, it's, it's because he doesn't have to. There are some things that we're supposed to infer, and yet that sets the stage for this total and dramatic reversal in terms of the expectation of Ruth the Moabitess being the model Israelite
1: in a time when every man did what was right in his own eyes. Um, right, so, yeah, and the, the authors of the, the Old Testament... We, we've said this numerous times, but expect us to be good readers. Right. Um, and so I don't think they have to beat us over the head necessarily with these things. The The breadcrumbs are all there, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and maybe speaking of this, Tim, if I can, uh, we've brought mm-hmm. up names a little bit. Let's talk real quick uh, before we yeah. kind of move the story forward. Uh, the names of all of our characters actually are interesting and, and including we're going <laughs> to have a renaming right of Naomi later on. Um, Mm -hmm. But, as Tim's already mentioned, Elimelech is Eli Melech, right, Uh, God is King, or my God is King. Naomi Mm -hmm. seems to be derived from the Hebrew word meaning pleasant. Um, So, at at some point, right, you have maybe some truthfulness in Naomi's name, either irony or ironic truthfulness in in, uh, Elimelech's name. It's a true statement for the book, even if Elimelech doesn't live it out. Um, mm-hmm. But even as kids, this is something interesting, is kids have names uh, which are better found along the seven dwarves uh, of Snow White, uh, <laughs> of uh, maybe sickly or, or uh, frail, because uh, uh, Malon means something or is derived from a verb meaning to be weak or sick, and Killian means to be frail. Uh, there's a little foreshadowing in their names as well. Even the names of their wives, uh, Orpa. I have a fun story about Orpah, uh, but seems to maybe come from Orf or the back of the neck, or the back. She's going to then turn her back on Naomi later on. Whereas uh, Ruth means friendship or companion, right? There's something very truthful in their names. So some of our characters are going to be very faithful or true to their name, and some of the names seem to maybe be more, uh, in an ironic sense, in the opposite of what mm. is there. Funny story, Tim, I told you off air, but I, I want to tell it again here. Uh, in Orpa, we actually have the namesake. I I understand of Oprah Winfrey. Um, if you flip the P <laughs> and the R, which is what happened on the birth certificate, you go from Orpa to Oprah. Um, and so there you go. That's what I understand her namesake to be. Um, I like Oprah better. I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, Orpa, <laughs> at least to an English ear, doesn't hit quite as well. But there you go. A little fun trivia for everyone today.
0: Yeah. So what's in a name? Apparently, a lot. And, and that's, yeah, that's part lot. of what we mean, Brian, when we talk about the intentionality of the author, the narrative beauty of Ruth, that this is a story that is so intentionally crafted as to draw us in, uh, but also alert us to certain ironies, as well as, as blessings that, that come out, that sometimes people don't live up to their name, and then sometimes people's names uh, turn out to be very true. Uh, and we see that, of course, in each of these. So let, let's talk a little bit more about the setting so Moab, mm-hmm. okay, it's, it's not necessarily explicitly stated, you can't move or you shouldn't move. The Moabites have a questionable representation, uh, reputation. Uh, it would have been very possible that, that going there would have been seen as an abandonment of their community. Uh, but it does say that they were going there, at least in the translation that we read, that they were going there for a while, that they were journeying right. there, that at least the initial indication is this wasn't meant to be permanent, but what we see is Elimelech dies; they stay, the sons marry. So, uh, what do you make of what do you make of some of those details, Brian, in terms of the the
1: length of the
0: stay, how the story develops, uh, this background information we have at the beginning?
1: Yeah. So the length of the stay, I, I see at least two key things the authors try to communicate to us. Mm-hmm. First, Tim, as you just intimated, what may have been a temporary stay at least initially in their minds had become pretty much a permanent transplant uh truly like you you can have right multiple seasons of famines but over Mm -hmm. a decade for the situation to not have changed substantially in in a way to allow them to come back home um Mm. seems to be a long period of time now if it's a divine punishment it's perfectly fine but it does seem to indicate, right, there, there's some sort of resettling going on in this family, which would be problematic. Why are they not returning to their family, right? Why are they not mm-hmm. returning to the land that has been promised to them? It also, so that's one thing. I think it's pointing out we've got maybe a, a covenant, faithfulness, trust, however you want to phrase it, issue going on uh, with Elimelech and then his sons after him. Mm-hmm. Second thing it sets up, very interestingly, is that no one has conceived. Right, uh, you mm-hmm. don't have any children being born, and barrenness, it's a painful condition in any culture. It's a sign of punishment or disfavor, uh most mm-hmm. commonly in these types of cultures, right? And, and so I think it's trying to indicate like, look, this is not a good situation. this does not have the blessing of God upon it. Um, so without spelling it out for us, right? we're reading through this going, this is bad. Something needs to change, we need to we need to fix something here because it is fundamentally wrong and we are seeing signs of God's disfavor upon it.
0: Yeah, Brian, I completely agree with those observations. I also, uh, as I look at this, you have in a sense, uh, the decision point after Elimelech has died really turns to Naomi. Uh, we have Malon and Kilion who marry Moabite women but of course, Naomi has some kind of say in that. And as we look at the, the mm-hmm. development of the story, Naomi is not seen as a passive character. She's once someone who's very willing to give advice to Ruth later. Uh, and so it's not simply that Elimelech did what was right in his own eyes. You also have Naomi and Malon and Kilion doing what's right in their eyes. Um, and they marry these Moabite women, uh, which would have been highly questionable. Uh, and it's another sign of their really intention to stay in Moab. In other words, to assimilate to at least some degree in the the Moabite culture, uh, not necessarily to give up their status as as faithful Israelites, but at least to not live in the land and seem to be okay with that. So again, mm-hmm. problems to be solved. Uh, this is the 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 plot thickens moment when we see Melon and Kilion. But of course, then the tragedy is in verse five. Malon and Killian also died and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. So Naomi is left destitute. And uh, let's just let's maybe unpack that for a moment. What would the significance of that have been in terms of Naomi? Uh, She's she's not only widowed, she's left childless. This is a dire situation for her. Maybe can you uh, explain that a little bit, Brian?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Naomi's situation is about as perilous as it could be in the social order of that day. Um, right. So these are patriarchal societies, uh, in part that's because the economy, as we could say of these societies is derived from manual labor, Mm. uh, and, and women's contribution to that economy is as products of that manual labor, uh, lacking that. How can she have any standing or any support or any care given to her? She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have sons. She doesn't have children to care for her. Mm -hmm. Um, So she's a widow with no support network. That's a perilous place to be. By the way, friends, this is why the Bible makes a big deal of true and unadulterated faith is to care for widows and orphans, right? Care for those that are marginalized and in danger of being oppressed, taken advantage of or ignored by society. Um, Mm -hmm. She's in that place. On top of that, we're not in her home country. She does not have family around her, like extended family. Um, So all these things mean she is operating, shall we say, on the ragged edge uh, of safety in this culture. Um, Yes, she has Moabite daughters-in-law, and so maybe that gets you something. But it is interesting, the story does not really delve into how is Naomi viewed by her neighbors. She has love Mm -hmm. for her daughters-in-law, but we have no indication that that is reciprocated. Um, Mm. So putting this all together, we are in a very dangerous situation. We've already seen signs that has God's displeasure. Now we see very practical signs that this is untenable and cannot remain. Something has to change, and that's kind of where our story then leads out of this passage and into the next. Right, Tim?
0: Yeah, it does. So in in verse 6, continuing those thoughts, Naomi decides, okay, I'm going to leave the territory of Moab, leave the fields of Moab. Why? Because the reason is she heard that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. So at least, and this is where maybe there's a beam of light that sort of strikes through the darkness, Naomi is someone who hears the the word of God. She's at least attuned enough to, uh, to listen to God's word as it comes and respond to it. So even though she's going to return in shame, uh, because shame would have been another huge factor, even though, as she's going to say later, she returns in bitterness of heart, uh, she realizes there is no future for me in Moab. And she hears of God's provision, and she decides that it's better for her to return to God empty-handed than it would be to stay in Moab, even if, say, she had at least some social support with her daughters-in-law. She wants to go back. She hears the word of God, and as she responds to God's provision, we see again that God has not abandoned Naomi. Um, and so, as we get and to I think verse we second,
1: see, yeah, go ahead, Brian. Oh, sorry, just to jump in, Tim, listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love Jesus's parables because oftentimes he's drawn a lesson that God's already said a few times to us. God created us; He knows we're sometimes kind of slow on the uptake. Are, do you hear overtones of the parable what we call the prodigal son of mm-hmm. it's better for me even you know taking all these social mm-hmm. uh shame upon me it's better to go back uh mm-hmm. and we see some of that heart in naomi of like it is better to go back to be with my people um mm-hmm. and, and then this is going to invite how is she going to be received back uh in mm-hmm. verse six too we do see that although Naomi and her family maybe have not paid attention to God, the Lord has paid attention to his people's needs. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is something thrown in there to say why the famine has ended, but I think Mm -hmm. it's also meant there to hang over the story. God Mm -hmm. is not oblivious to the needs of his people or to what is about to happen in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. Um, And it's kind of setting that scene again that God is going to be intimately involved in each of the events taking place. All right, sorry to have cut you off, Tim. Go ahead, let's jump into uh, verse seven.
0: No, we we uh, are in verse seven, the last verse we're gonna consider, and so this is just a record that she does what she says she's going to do. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road, leading back to the land of Judah. So she's on her way, but of course there's a dot, 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 right? What is gonna happen with these daughters-in-law? Uh, even if it's best for Naomi, to go back to her homeland, it's by no means clear that it's going to be best for those daughters-in-law. In In fact, uh, at least the initial indication would be that they would be better off going back to their parents' home, which of course is exactly what Naomi's gonna tell them to do. And so verse seven really raises the tension, or at least uh, gets us on the edge of our seat. What is going to happen with these daughters-in-law? Naomi's going back in shame and to accompany her, would actually be to take on voluntarily the shame that Naomi is experiencing uh, even when they don't have to. So they have a choice and there's a heightened tension uh, which leaves us with questions as we end today's episode and end this consideration. uh, It's gonna leave us with questions that then we want to have answered. It's kind of like Gandalf. I have questions, questions that need answering. Uh, which is, of course, what keeps us coming back. So, Brian, do you have any final thoughts on verse seven before we wrap up today's consideration?
1: No, I like that we're stopping here, listeners, because it's easy to just sit down and read this whole book in one go, it's fairly short. Um, But I, I think we're supposed to dwell on some of the questions, as Tim has said, that need answering here. This is a not insubstantial journey. It's not like they're going across the world, but this is not a short journey from Moab to Bethlehem. And if it's going to be primarily or exclusively women traveling by themselves, Mm -hmm. that is far from a safe prospect. And -hmm. and so there's a lot of questions. God has paid attention to his people's needs by providing them food in Bethlehem. Will he provide for Naomi? Will he bring Mm -hmm. her back safely? What about her daughters-in-law, who for all the reasons we said about Naomi's condition might prefer to stay in Moab and not go with her? Right. And, and so I, it's important, listeners, I hope you kind of stop here with us, take some time to kind of really wrestle through what the author's doing and building up the tension and, and trying to set the scene for what we see next and start seeing the character of Naomi and the character of Ruth come to the forefront. But that's going to be next week's episode, right, Tim?
0: Yeah, and listeners, we hope that you uh, join us next time as we continue this study. Again, this is our, our love to be able to go through the Bible, uh, to be able to consider it and, uh, and hopefully help and serve you as we do that. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us as well. We'd love to engage with you on Facebook. You can also reach us at inwiththeold@outlook.com at and uh, we'd love to engage with you in that way. So join us next time. Thank you for uh, spending this time with us. And of course, until next time, stay cool and stay old.